Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Here we are at the first episode of season five. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much to all of you who have been so incredibly supportive of the podcast all these years. We love you, we appreciate you, and we can't wait for you to see what we have in store this season. We want to recognize how much of an absolute dumpster fire our world has been over the past six plus months, and to be able to connect with you all on sex education has been a dream come true, so thank you so, so much. In our first episode of the season, I speak with Dr. Diana Green Foster. Dr. Foster is a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and she's the Director of Research at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. An internationally recognized expert on women's experiences with contraception and abortion, she's the principal investigator of the Turnaway Study. She's also the author of the book, The Turnaway Study, 10 Years, 1,000 Women, and the Consequences of Having or Being Denied an Abortion. To learn more, go to www.turnawaystudy.com. Here I am for the first episode of the season with Dr. Diana Green Foster. I bet you baked all the bread and binged all the TV shows during quarantine. But have you created an exact copy of your genitals? Yeah, I didn't think so. Meet Clona Willie. Clona Willy and Clona Pussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of a penis or vulva at home into a high quality sex toy or memento. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Hello, Dr. Diana Foster. How's it going today? It's going well. Nice to talk to you today. It's really, really nice to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Let's go ahead and get started by you telling us your name, your pronouns, and what you do. So my name is Diana Green Foster. Uh, I go by she, her, hers, or I use she, her, hers. And I'm a demographer, which sounds like a boring statistician, and it can be. But demographers typically study birth and death and migration, but in truth, it's for all interesting aspects of human life that can be measured. So demographers also study sex and contraceptive use and abortion. Incredible. And thank you so, so much for being here again today. Um, The first thing I actually want to start this interview off with is discussing uh, a huge giant who just passed away, as many, many people know, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on her impact in the sexual health space, um, what she meant to you, um, what it means, uh, the fact that she is gone, and just kind of anything and everything on your mind about that. Yeah, what a what a blow to women's rights to have Ruth Bader Ginsburg gone from the court. And at the time we're talking, we don't know what's going to happen with her seat. Um, but what was, she was uh, a longtime supporter of women's rights, of equal rights, 
And some of her thinking around abortion ties perfectly into the Turnaway study because what she felt was that Roe v. Wade was a, a incomplete justification for abortion rights. It's not that she opposed abortion rights, but that that justification of privacy wasn't sufficient to explain why abortion rights were important. And just to disclose, I'm not a lawyer. And when I understood privacy rights, I thought it was that this is a, a personal decision that women should be able to keep to themselves. And that's not what privacy means. It means that people should get to decide whether to um, terminate their own pregnancy or have a baby and not the government. So it's privacy relative to the government. Regardless, it's not sufficient, says Ginsburg. And she wrote in um, 1984 um, an article in the New York, North Carolina Law Review. And I'm just going to quote her because you can tell her way of talking is so different from mine. This is a lawyer. Here comes the lawyer talk, but I love it. Uh, the conflict, however, is not simply one between a fetus's interest and a woman's interest narrowly conceived, nor is it the nor is the overriding issue state versus private control of a woman's body for a span of nine months. Also in the balance is a woman's autonomous charge of her full life course. And it's that last sentence the, that, you know, many people who are supportive of abortion rights feel that abortion is a bigger decision than just a pregnancy, that it has to do with a whole slew of women's rights, people's rights, people's outcomes, childbearing has huge ramifications, personal, social, family, and that it to narrowly talk about fetal rights versus women's bodily autonomy is not sufficient. And uh, the Turnaway study, which I'll be talking about with you, tries to look at some of the bigger consequences for people when they are or are not able to get a wanted abortion. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing that and making that connection. And before we really get into the Turnaway study, I have to say I am really geeking out right now and super, super excited to have you because, you know, studying your work in my master's program, you're an absolute legend in the public health world. And I know that it's kind of like funny to say that because scientists and researchers and demographers aren't necessarily seen as like rock stars. But um, I think that your book and your study, the Turnaway study, is so, so important and such incredible, relevant work to so many people's lives. So I just wanted to thank you on behalf of the public health world for doing this amazing work. Um, and also, I would love to hear about it. Tell me all about it. What is the Turnaway Study? Um, who is it kind of involving? And, and what does it really mean? I love it. I love that I'm anyone is considering me a rock star. It's <laughs> extremely funny to me. And uh... Yeah, I feel like it was yesterday I was in graduate school and wondering whether I would be able to make a difference and um, whether I was on the right track. So if that's how anyone is feeling, definitely there's a lot of ways in which the world could be better and better through science, especially. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, and you may not get called a rock star, but man, is it sweet when that <laughs> happens. Um, so the Turnaway study is um, was a study about uh, what happens to women who seek abortions? Uh, and, you know, almost a million women in the country uh, and some men seek abortions. And uh, we kind of have this idea that if it's legal, people are able to get it. And that is not the case. There are probably many thousands. There are definitely many thousands. And we don't know if there are many tens of thousands 
of people who um, need abortions or want abortions are, and are unable to get them. So in this study, we looked at people who showed up at a, an abortion facility just beyond the gestational limit of that facility and were turned away. And our estimate is back in, I think, 2008 or 2010, it was something like 4,000 women every year are turned away and carry the pregnancy to term because they're too far along. So that doesn't include all the people who maybe don't get an abortion for other reasons, but gestational limits at that point um, resulted in our best estimate of about 4,000 people not able to get wanted abortions. Since then, many more states have implemented gestational limits, so probably that number has gone up. So, at, so what the Turnaway study did was it went to 30 abortion facilities across the country where, which had the latest gestational limit uh, within 150 miles. And if a woman was too far along for that clinic, she, um, uh, we recruited her and then a woman just under the gestational limit who received the abortion. So that was just a matter of a few weeks between the two. And then because most of these facilities had limits in the second trimester, but 90% of women who have abortions in the United States do so in the first trimester, we also recruited a woman uh, in the first trimester for every woman denied. And we followed all of these people for um, five years, calling them every six months for phone interviews. And I say women, because at the time we started the study, um, I, I'll take responsibility for this bad decision, made the eligibility criteria pregnant women. And it's possible that a trans man would still have um, been, w w in any case, we didn't end up with any trans men. So these were all women in the study. And if I could go back, that's something I would fix. Um, so I'm going to say women, even though some trans men also seek abortion care. Um, so uh, this study was really aimed to answer the question, does abortion hurt women? And that's an idea that has resonated through our popular culture. You can see billboards. You, it has affected even Supreme Court decisions. And people vaguely feel that it must be so, um, but there's uh, no evidence. And so Justice Kennedy in 2007 said, though there was no reliable evidence, it seemed reasonable to him, I'm paraphrasing, that, uh, that pe women would, would experience regret, be depressed, and have a loss of self-esteem. And his, in his sentence, the, the truly uh, correct part of it was that in 2007, there was no reliable data. That one, that bit was for sure I agree with. And so that was about when we started this study. We ended up recruiting women for three years, following them for five years, and doing data analysis for more than a dozen at this point. Um, and we, we ended up with 50 academic papers and just recently a book. So Scribner Books published a book for, so the 50 academic papers you probably haven't read unless you have done your master's in, in reproductive health, Present. but the uh, book <laughs> is aimed for everybody, um, regardless of whether you've gone to grad school or not. Amazing. Thank you so much for, for laying that out. What, what important work and and kind of wild, like how long these these studies take, right? I think like the general public doesn't really understand. Um, and even <laughs> if you go to grad school, it's still hard to comprehend that like studies like this in order to fully understand, you know, who is impacted, who is joining studies like this, 
how to analyze and collect, like collect and analyze the data and then how to disseminate that information to make policy changes, to change cultural and social norms. It's a long, long process. Um, so I would love to know yeah. how, how did you get involved with this work and what's your, your origin story and your background that led you to it? So let me first emphasize, even more than the time is the number of people. So this was a huge collaboration of women scientists. Um, we had economists, sociologists, epidemiologists, public health researchers, social psychologists, nurses, doctors, all working on different pieces of this study. It was awesome. Um, people came to me saying that they wanted to work on it, and I went out and recruited people you know, I needed someone who had expertise in substance use and pregnancy, and I found somebody excellent. And um, so it was a huge, lovely collaboration. Um, so not just time, but also people that make good science and also interdisciplinary work, not just uh, wasn't just one demographer sitting at a laptop. That was not how it went. Uh, so I, um, I uh, am... Uh, did my undergraduate degree at Berkeley and oh, in Bears. natural Me resource too. economics. Did you? All yeah. right. <laughs> and uh, my PhD at Princeton in uh, demography and public and international affairs. And, um, and then immediately went to the University of California, San Francisco, where I still am uh, to evaluate. I went there to evaluate the California state family planning program, which gave free contraceptives, um, to low-income women and men, um, and it was it was an amazing program at the time that all ser services were mostly being rationed and cut, and this was a major expansion of care. So I spent um, a decade working on that study and did really, if I could say so, really cool work. For example, you can showing say so. that if you, can you sure say so, <laughs> if you give people a one-year supply of contraceptives, I know this is shocking, you'll be, they're less likely to become pregnant in the coming year than if you make them go to a pharmacy or drugstore or clinic to pick up refills every month. Somebody posted that on Facebook, not realizing that the, and uh, someone else, you know, said, you know, file this under duh, <laughs> <laughs> which is really, really ego boosting when you've done the work. But the truth is that things that seem reasonable, sometimes they need some uh, hard data to show the magnitude of the effect. And without things sounding reasonable isn't enough to change laws. But with the data, 21 states have currently changed the laws to allow a one-year supply of contraceptives on the basis of that study oh, or wow. those few papers. So sometimes you have to, and the Turnaway study again, Lots of people might have thought, uh, you know, that having a baby when you weren't ready to have a baby would have an impact on people's lives. But what is that impact and how do you quantify it? And so um, that's the Turnaway study is aiming to do that. Yeah. So let's get into some of those findings. Um, I'm, I'm really curious. What are like a few? I obviously after doing years and years of research, there are a lot of findings. There's a lot of things that you could talk about. But I'm wondering, what are a few super important findings from this study that you'd like to share um, with listeners? Yeah, the most important is that we find no evidence that abortion hurts women. So there was no um, change in mental health um, 
a worsen, no worsening in mental health outcomes or symptoms for women who received their abortions. So I think that's the most, you know, immediately important thing because that's what people are talking about. Does abortion hurt women? The answer is no. And less in our public discussion is whether restricting access to abortion hurts women. And on that front, we have a lot of findings. Um, my uh, colleague, social psychologist Antonia Biggs, studied mental health outcomes from these data, and she showed that there's actually short-term mental health harm from being denied an abortion. So in the short term, higher anxiety, lower self-esteem um, from women who are denied abortions. But over time, those receiving and those denied show actually the same trajectory of improved mental health. So I would say in the long run, neither abortion nor abortion denial hurts women's mental health. Um, and um, it's really not a mental health story. Uh, instead, to get a like, picture of what the effect of an abortion denial is on women, um, it's important to look at why they said they wanted an abortion. So the most common reason is they say they can't afford to have a child, and we see very large and long-lasting economic effects so that women who are denied abortions do worse economically than women who receive them. Um, they talk about uh, it not being a right time in their life to have a baby, and we find that women who receive their abortion go on to have a baby later, even within the five-year study period, are able to raise that child with more economic security and closer maternal bonding than uh, women who are forced to carry a pregnancy to term that they wanted to terminate. Um, people say their relationship isn't good enough with the man involved in the pregnancy, and we find those relationships dissolve regardless of whether they receive or are denied an abortion. So there, uh, when you look at the reasons, oh, I'll do one more. And women also say, that uh, they want to care for the children they already have, and that's their reason for wanting an abortion. And um, that may be a surprising reason to your listeners, but 60% of women nationally who have abortions are already mothers, and, um, and it's a leading reason for wanting to have an abortion is to care for the children you already have. So we asked about children's outcomes in the Turnaway study, and the existing children of women who are denied abortions do worse than the existing children of women who receive abortions. And that's in two different areas. One is in um, uh, living in a household with enough money to you know, meet basic living needs for the family. And the other is um, in child development and achievement of developmental milestones. It's a small difference, but a measurable difference in um, the kid's development if their mom is denied an abortion versus receives one. So I, I think um, the findings show that there are that the two groups of women, the study was a success. The two groups of women are the same before the pregnancy, and over time they differ in ways that are exactly linked to whether they received or were denied that abortion. Um, and all of the differences that we find are to the detriment of people who are denied. So we don't find ways in which being denied resulted in better outcomes. I kind of thought we would. I thought we'd find higher life satisfaction or um, social support, but we didn't find either of those. Yeah, that's kind of my next question, actually, if anything was surprising. So, so could you repeat that one more time, just so I understand? 
Yeah, so um, we looked for all the ways in which women might be better off if they had a baby or worse off if they had a baby. And um, the ways that we thought that people might be better off just didn't pan out in the data. For example, I thought people would have higher life satisfaction because even though raising a child is a struggle, it comes with a sense of satisfaction. And <clears throat> the reason why I think we don't actually measure that is because the women who got abortions who wanted kids also went on to have them. So it's not like one group had kids and the other group didn't have kids. Mm -hmm. And there are also, obviously, don't need to tell your listeners or you, but there are also a lot of other sources for life satisfaction besides kids. Of course. And people were able to pursue other um, goals too. But if you're going to ask about surprising results, the the most surprising was that we actually had two women die from uh, after delivery. So uh, they were denied abortions and they died from pregnancy and childbirth related causes. Wow. Which is a, it results in a, it means we had an astronomically high level of maternal mortality, much higher than we would have thought. I'm not um, going to say that I think that uh, being denied abortions leads to death, but it shows you that childbirth and continued pregnancy is a major physical health challenge. And we observe that in women's health outcomes over time, but we also observe that in the most extreme outcome, which is death. So um, yeah, pregnancy is a big deal. And it seems, uh, you know, this study shows that the physical health consequences are huge. Absolutely. Yeah. And in our, in our master's program, we talked about maternal death and maternal mortality a lot. And just the fact that specifically for black women, um, you know, the, the rate, um, oh God, my old professor is going to kill me if I get rate or ratio mixed up, but basically that black women are nine times more likely to die in childbirth or of maternal causes um, than white women, specifically in New York City. And I believe the national average is four times. Black women are four yep. times more likely to die um, of maternal maternal causes. So I think like that is obviously super horrific and also super important to highlight the fact that that die or that that happened, that those women died in the study, um, just to kind of be able to tie, you know, the, the importance of access to abortion with the importance of access to proper maternal culturally responsive care, um, especially for black women and black people with uteruses and for people of color with uteruses. And I just think that that um, isn't, um, you know, it's not that it's not surprising to me, but just that it's like it's so horrific that it needs to be kind of tied in with the other yeah results and with the the information and the other conversations that we're having because they are very much tied together. Yeah, these two people weren't people of color, but that doesn't mean that it's not related that um that pregnancy is a major physical health uh risk and having great social support, great access to care, fair treatment, all of these are super important um to having good outcomes. And um, even with good health care, which I don't know that I don't know for sure that these people had it, but uh, pregnancy is just risky. And um, we take it for granted because people regularly choose to become pregnant because they want a child. But voluntarily having this risk and involuntarily seem like very different things. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also kind of to your point of what you just said, what we do know in terms of um, kind of unplanned pregnancy rates, we do know that 50% roughly of pregnancies in the U.S. are actually unplanned. Um, so I think that is a really interesting thing to tie in. And when we're talking about sex education and when we're talking about why, why that percentage is so high, um, we have, you know, the podcast has a TikTok and we do like sex ed trivia on it. And that was one of the questions of like, you know, how many, what percentage of unplanned pregnancies do you think are, is happening in the U S and the options were like, a 27%, B 30%. And then eventually we got to 49% and most people did not guess the right answer. And I think that's because again, to tie this conversation around abortion and maternal death with lack of birth control access, lack of um, sex education, lack of, you know, having social support, parents, teachers, older siblings, cousins, to be able to talk about sex and about, um, prevention of STIs and pregnancy. We don't have these conversations, which is why, um, you know, the, the end result, um, can be these horrific consequences such as, you know, people being turned away for, for not, um, for not, you know, making the deadline of the gestational period or death in some, in some cases. Um, but, that tangent is kind of, you know, I think you and I know those things. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand the connections there. Um, Yeah. Can I, and just one personal comment on that statistic is that I don't think it has to be a public health goal that every pregnancy be a planned pregnancy. There's nothing wrong with a happy surprise. The problem is with the nightmare surprise, you know, the, (laughs) the one where the woman feels like she cannot um, either uh, nurture a pregnancy or give birth or and doesn't want to parent, uh, those are the problems, not the, you know, not the how fun we're having a third when we thought we only wanted two. Right, Those right. are not the problems. <laughs> or we're having two when we thought we wanted one, whatever. Right. You know, that those are not the public health. There's no public health problem there. Um, but the, but pregnancies that a woman wants to end are are the ones that I think are the problem. Yep. I'm really, really glad that you made that clarification. Super important. Um, let's move right along um, and talk a little bit about what you mentioned before about kind of LGBTQ inclusiveness. You kind of mentioned like, you know, you wish that you included the eligibility to include trans men and maybe non-binary people. Um, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on if you if you could go back or if there are other studies like this out there that you could maybe influence with your work. Um, how can we ensure that studies like this um, about abortion, about reproductive health care um, are more inclusive are more inclusive for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, because as you mentioned, and as we all know, or if you're listening and you don't know this, queer people and trans people also have abortions um, and also need access to this kind of uh, resources and education and information. So how, how do we in- ensure that studies, future studies that have eligibility requirements include queer people and non-binary yeah. folks and, and, and other mm-hmm. folks? I mean, I think we're uh, this past decade has been a, seen a huge improvement in our understanding of um, LGBTQ um, people and rights and how unintentionally exclusive we have been in the past. So yeah, I am. I definitely we have 
we didn't exclude people who um, were not straight. So we have people who um, uh, that wasn't part of the exclusion criteria, but right. we did mistakenly exclude trans men and um, people who are non-binary. Um, but uh, and uh, also uh, we uh, asked about the person, the respondent's relationship with the man involved in the pregnancy. But we never considered that maybe that person didn't identify as a man. Um, and um, I um, only two years in did we think to add uh, romantic relationships with other people besides that. Mm. So my colleague Ushma Upadhyay, who's a public health researcher, um, she, um, you know, partway through the study, re you know, argued with no resistance that we should add a question about the quality of people's relationships with anyone in their lives, the quality of their romantic relationships. So she's, um, that paper's just coming out about uh, looking at people's relationships with anyone, not just the man involved in the pregnancy. So we know that the relationship with the man involved in the pregnancy drops precipitously regardless of whether the woman got the abortion or not. Um, but if you if the woman didn't get the abortion, there's ongoing contact with him. So domestic violence goes down very sharply for people who get their abortions and not people who are denied their abortions. And it's not because they're still in a relationship, but because they have ongoing contact because they're they've got a child together. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and in terms of relationships with other people, starting at two years through five years, we see that if you receive an abortion, you're more likely to be in what you call a high quality relationship than if you're denied an abortion. So it um, in the way that that having a child before you are ready or with under the wrong circumstances or with the wrong person um, creates a life circumstances that just make everything a little bit harder it also affects subsequent romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. So um, Dr. Upadhyay has shown that it's, and the, there she certainly wasn't ex, uh, limiting to just relationships with men, but um, having a primary romantic relationship. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the Hyde Amendment. Um, as we know, the anniversary of when it was first enacted is at the end of September. Um, can you share a little bit about the Hyde Amendment uh, what it is, um, and why it's so harmful? Yeah, the Hyde Amendment is named for Henry Hyde, who was a Republican U.S. House representative from Illinois. And in 1976, he introduced an amendment to uh, the annual health spending bill at the federal level that restricted any federal funds from paying for an abortion. Um, and Congress has reaffirmed this policy year after year. And um, now it's, it's um, you know, it's expanded. So it's not just uh, banning all abortion, f federal funding for abortion, except life endangerment. And it includes, hits all sorts of people, people who are work for the military, people who work, who are in federal prisons, people who um, uh, work for the government, federal government. So it's a huge number of people who are affected and everyone who's on Medica Medicare or Medicaid in a state where um, there isn't a, um, a, an explicit law that says that state um, funds can pay for abortion. So I think there's 17 states that allow state funds to pay for abortions. 
if you're not in one of those and you're low income, it's very likely that you're going to have to come up with hundreds of dollars um, to pay for an abortion if you need one. And sometimes and, thousands, right? I mean, including the yeah, cost of travel, be. including the cost of hotel, potentially childcare, et cetera. Yeah. It, it, and for, you know, it's by definition hits people who already don't have enough money. So it's really, um, you know, it's, it's ways in which we, we, uh, you know, healthcare is not a right. And if you're, um, for some reason, if you're poor, we somehow think that we have a right to say what health care you get. Anyway, um, the I, it's not part of the Turnaway study, but several studies have shown that about a quarter of people who are low income who want an abortion um, give birth instead if they're in a state where um, the Hyde Amendment is uh, has an effect. So it's not the case that, uh, you know, banning abortion doesn't stop abortion. Uh, in fact, you can just make abortion unaffordable and that stops people from having abortions. Mm. So there's our, we have this complacency that somehow people always find a way and that that's complacency is not justified. Mm. That is super interesting. Cause I feel like a lot of the, I totally hear what you're saying and that, that makes a lot of sense to me that like, if they don't ha- like have a way, if you know, someone is poor or low income and doesn't have way a way to um to get an abortion because they can't pay for it um it makes sense to me that they would just have that baby um but also what we talk a lot about in my you know in my master's program and and in my classes is just that it will just make people find a way to do it unsafely or to do it in a way um that you know they essentially are not under the care or supervision of folks like doctors or medical professionals or people in their community um, because it has to be this underground um, operation or, um, you know, procedure or medication or herbs or what have you. And I think that, you know, both sides of that coin of either forcing someone to have a baby when they don't want one or forcing someone to go through other means um, and going underground, both are horrific outcomes. Yeah, and I think that argument's a little outdated in that, um, you know, having uh, an abortion without a medical provider now is not necessarily unsafe. Right. So um, there, many people seem to be ordering pills online from uh, pharmacies, and if they do get the same pills that they would get in a clinic, um, misoprostol and mifepristone, then their abortion is just as safe as if they were handed those pills by um, a nurse or a doctor. So it's not um, the case anymore that that, you know, self-managed abortion is not necessarily more dangerous than one provided by a clinician. But there is definitely, um, you know, anyone who resorts to, to, you know, violence against their body is clearly. um, But, you know, that can happen. It didn't happen in the Turnaway study. But I think it's a it's not likely the most immediate outcome. The most immediate is that people will get their own pills somewhere else without a doctor's supervision. Completely. And I completely agree. And also, like, I think it's important to kind of sneak in there or kind of mention the fact that, like, then we can talk about, like, over-policing and over-criminalization of, like, people of color and black women who are found sometimes with um, these illegal pills um, and then the amount of, you know, time that they get in prison for that um, is typically, like, way more 
um, or there are studies that show that that people of color are over over policed, um, over kind of criminalized in in this sphere. Um, so e- completely agree, and I think that's that's an excellent point about um, the outdated argument. But I do think like politically and culturally, um, there there are some some dangers still um, because even if, as you mentioned yeah. in the beginning of the interview, even if abortion is quote unquote legal, Roe v. Wade you know, made abortion quote unquote legal, um, for folks, but it is not necessarily safe and accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is very cool that I'm having this conversation with you. Um, okay. We have one more question left. Um, and we're going to go back to the turnaway study and I'm just kind of curious, where do you hope that these findings go? Um, how can they enact real change and how can people listening right now, um, you know, advocate for that change and, and what does that look like to you? Yeah, so I'm definitely not an advocate. I'm a scientist and I, so I'm not the one to give the best advice on how to advocate for change. What I would like to see the Turnaway study do is change our mindset about abortion from an abstract debate where, you know, someone not involved in the pregnancy can theoretically weigh in on what you know, what is the most ethical or moral decision without considering the people involved. And what I um, tried to do in the book is to um, tell the stories of people from the study in their own words, that we interviewed them and got their own words, so that people can start to see how Um, what the circumstances are and what responsibilities people are weighing when they make this decision so that it's not a decision we can make for other people. They are trying to be responsible. They are, when we ask them their reasons for having an abortion, all of their concerns are borne out in the experiences of people who are denied. People are making thoughtful decisions. They understand that they're pregnant. They understand the consequences of having an abortion and they understand the consequences of not being able to get that abortion. And they've made a decision that turns out to be to result in better outcomes than if they are unable to get their wanted abortion. So I would love to see a shift towards respecting people's um, decision making and um, and having an understanding of the context of people's lives that it's not just uh, fetal rights versus women's rights. It's a um, self. It's it's the number of people involved, from partners to families to existing children, to the possibility of having a a wanted child later. All of those are. It's so much bigger than than one um, moment. It's people's entire life trajectories, and we. I would love to see a shift towards more respect and trusting women in this in their decision making about their own body. If you're someone in a long distance relationship, quarantine can be especially difficult without your boo. What if you could have an exact replica of your partner's penis or vulva to use as a sex toy? While the year 2020 certifiably blows, at least we have Clonawilly to make our LDR dreams come true. Intrigued? Learn more at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalow, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. 
Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.